Hi, it's us, the Adler Planetarium. We have some news, but we've been away from this podcast for a while, so before we tell you what's new with the Aquarius Project, let's recap. It starts way back in 2017. A car-sized meteor rips through the atmosphere, breaks into little pieces, and crashes into Lake Michigan. Chris Bresky works at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, on the shore of that lake. Someone from work says, I wonder if we could go get those meteorites. Chris says, wait, could we? So he gets to work. He rallies the high school students he works with in Adler team programs, cold call scientists, and assembles an unlikely team of amateurs and experts. The teens become the world's foremost authorities in underwater meteorite hunting. Really. They're the first people ever to attempt what they're attempting, so no scientist, no matter how accomplished, can tell them how to do it. They approach what they don't know with curiosity, celebrate the skills they have, learn new ones, and turn their mistakes into breakthroughs. The last time you heard from us, we told you the team didn't find exactly what it was looking for, a piece of the rock that crashed in 2017. But it did find something. Maybe. A whole bunch of maybes. Tiny rocks that looked different from the other tiny rocks. Could they be micrometeorites that traveled to Earth from completely different places in space and just happened to wind up near each other at the bottom of Lake Michigan? Chris sent them to the lab to find out. Then, just as we were hoping to see some results, the pandemic hit. The lab equipment broke. Two years passed. When the lab was up and running again, Maria picked up where the project left off. Well, I am Maria Valdez. I consider myself a cosmochemist. Maria works in the meteorite lab at the Field Museum, down the street from the Adler. She suspended six of the team's sand-grain-sized, maybe micrometeorites in epoxy and switched on the machines to find out where they came from. The first machine, a scanning electron microscope, or SEM for short, blasts each sample with subatomic particles called electrons. And electrons are either absorbed or partially reflected based on what it's made of. So for example, carbon, low atomic number, will absorb more electrons than it reflects. And if your atom is an element with a very high atomic number, it will reflect more electrons than it absorbs. The SEM uses three extremely sensitive detectors. Because they tell us different different things, right? Two of them detect reflected electrons. Some of the electrons come from the surface of the sample, and some come from underneath the surface. It's it's like a microscope, right? It's like looking at a sample through a microscope at, at extremely high magnification. You get information about microtopography that you just wouldn't be able to see with a regular microscope. The third detector measures energy dispersive x-rays, which are really handy because they're produced inside atoms and they can tell us what kind of atom produced them. Carbon, nitrogen, or whatever element it is. So the SEM tells you about the composition and structure of the sample. But wouldn't it be nice to know what all those elements added up to? Luckily, there's a machine for that too. The Raman spectrometer. This one fires a laser at the samples. Most of the light bounces off or scatters back to the detector with the same wavelength that had originally. But a very, very small amount of it is scattered in a slightly different wavelength. The difference comes from how the light interacts with the sample, which depends on what the sample is. Every mineral sends back its own unique spectrum of light. So it's really useful to understand what a micrometeorite is made out of. 
When Maria wants to know if a sample is from space, she looks for the signature spectra of two minerals, olivine and pyroxene, because they appear in high concentrations in meteorites. But the Raman spectrometer can also reliably tell you if your sample is from Earth. I'll give you an example. We, we had six candidate micrometeorites, and we knew that one of them immediately was not a micrometeorite because when we used a Raman spectrometer on it, the spectrum that popped out had roots pretty close to home. It was plant matter, <laughs> and it was pretty obvious from its Raman spectrum. When Maria looks at results from the SEM and the Raman, she's not only looking at the surface or the internal structure or composition. It takes more than a few molecules of olivine or pyroxene to convince her something is from space. It's not that it contains those minerals, that it comes from space necessarily, right? Because earth rocks contain those too. And that's why you also have to look at things like texture and isotopes and things like that. Um, it's just that wood pulp definitely doesn't exist in space. So what about the other five candidates? The ones that weren't made of wood? Friends, if you haven't already guessed, I'm here to tell you all five of them are from space. We found five, at least five, if not more, micrometeorites, and they're probably all from different parent bodies. So instead of getting samples from one source, we got at least five. So it's a, it's a bonus. <laughs> That's Philip Heck. He runs the lab. So most of these come from asteroids that haven't changed much since they formed 4.6 billion years ago. So they provide a view, a window into the earliest time of our solar system. So we have a really, these are essentially time capsules that preserved uh, rocks and conditions that are like recorded in those rocks and minerals. According to Philip, the promise of micrometeorites like the ones the Aquarius Project recovered from Lake Michigan is that if you collect enough of them, they can give you a truer picture of our solar system's past. If you collect one big meteorite, that's great. But it only tells you what conditions were like in that one spot, wherever that particular meteorite came from. Not to mention, as I think we've established here on the podcast, it can be very difficult to collect one big meteorite, even if you know exactly where it is. Micrometeorites come from everywhere, and there are a lot more of them lying around all over the world, on rooftops and sidewalks, and in lakes and backyards, waiting to be discovered. And we can use them to help us understand how the solar system formed. What happened very early on uh, defined how the solar system looks like today. That's, that's why studying micrometeorites is so interesting. The Aquarius Project set out to find little pieces of a big puzzle, pebble-sized bits of a 600-pound meteor. But they ended up with even smaller pieces of a much bigger puzzle, microscopic bits of a 4.6 billion-year-old neighborhood in the sky. This is, this is really exciting, a really exciting time in this project. Okay, I challenge you to find something that Philip wouldn't find exciting. Oh yeah, that's Jenica Greer. She works in Philip's lab too. You may remember her as the Aquarius Project's self-appointed dream killer. True to form, she was less excited about the micrometeorites than Philip. Because uh, it's not what we were looking for. We were looking for a meteorite. We were looking for physical evidence of a specific event. A meteorite tells a story. For micrometeorites to tell a story, you need all of them. Okay, that's actually a sick cosmochemistry burn. I know this is easy for me to say because, unlike Jenica, I did not spend many hours of my life meticulously sorting through smelly lake sludge in hopes of finding a bigger space rock. 
But part of what made the Aquarius Project so special is precisely the fact that it didn't always find what it was looking for. And sometimes it did find things it wasn't looking for. That's science. Whatever it finds or doesn't find points the way to more questions. If the story of people learning to see the world as it really is moves you the way it moves me, I have just the person to bring it home for us. My name is Chris Brasky, and I am very grateful to be here. If excitement about these results is a continuum, Jenica is at the dream killer end, and Chris is way down at the other end. The students who built an underwater meteorite sled to hunt for space rocks at the bottom of Lake Michigan found space rocks at the bottom of Lake Michigan. And I, it's, it still like gets me when I say it because it's, that, it's such a long process to do that. And, and they did that. And there's no saying they did not. <laughs> Chris lives in Connecticut now, where he works at the Mystic Seaport Museum. He says when he tells people about the project, his favorite stories are all about the things nobody knew. The stories that I pick out are all the what we didn't know. The moments when the people you think have all the answers don't. When we're Skyping with Mark Fries and he's and Mark Fries turns to a bunch of teens and the teens are like, what have you done to do this before? And they're like, and Mark goes, we've never done this before. Y'all are the experts on this one. Speaking of NASA Cosmic Dust curator Mark Fries, we should note that he has identified even more micrometeorite candidates and possible ablation spherules that Maria and Philip have just begun to analyze. Throughout the project, he and Chris were frequently amazed by the ingenuity of their young colleagues. Like, over and over. I can't believe these are high schoolers. I can't believe these are high schoolers. I can't believe these are teenagers. Teenagers who will be credited as co-authors on the upcoming scientific paper about this project. I love this. I love being a part of it. It was, it's so big, and I, got, I was so scared of it at first. They pressed on, even when they were scared to fail. And everyone else kept reminding them how scared of failure they should be. Don't you know how hard it is, or don't you know how like ridiculously hard, or like small the chances are? Um, and that the entire time, yeah, totally did. And went, and, and went forward anyway, sometimes inspired by the fact that it was hard. That spirit, that willingness to try, that's what made this project a success way before we knew how it would unfold. The idea that everyone has something to contribute and everyone should take a chance, that's a dream even a stone-cold dream killer can love. You can do crazy great things if you're willing to accept that failure is a possibility and you know it was relative like it was brave to do this and we were given the space to take a chance and when we were given that space we did something really cool (laughs) and i wish there were more opportunities like that for everyone The Aquarius Project is a production of the Adler Planetarium with music by Audio Network. It was written by me, Aubrey Henready, and produced by Aaron Cahoe. Our logo was designed by Arula Fetro. Follow the Adler Planetarium on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Adler Planet. And on YouTube and Facebook at Adler Planetarium. Our website is adlerplanetarium.org. 
Huge thanks to Philip Heck, Maria Valdez, and Jenica Greer over at the Field Museum. To Mark Fries at NASA for shipping me a box of possible space rocks with a big NASA sticker on it. By far the coolest piece of mail I've ever received. And most of all, to everyone who made this project so magical. Chris, the scientists, the teens, some of whom are now in their 20s, everyone. We are so proud of you and so grateful that we were allowed to tell your story. sentence this is the meanest thing you've ever done to me <laughs> i can't believe this is happening you you couldn't have said this to me one of the 14 times i was like hey you know if you want to do this like you could send me the kind of questions that you want to ask i can't stress enough how mean this is to a person who cares so much about endings and making the ending right um, the last sentence. Don't assume you know anything. Don't assume you know what you can do.